Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Connor Derrickson. Connor is currently a minor league strength coach for the Minnesota Twins. Um, in this episode, he goes over his own background in the strength conditioning realm, um, recommendations for players of all ages on nutrition, sleep, um, strength conditioning, you know, working out, and what two to three exercises would he pick to that would really help an athlete strengthen their core, which is something that it seems is the most common uh, theme in baseball is, is players who don't have a, a strong core. So great episode. Really enjoyed my conversation with Connor. If you enjoy the podcast, please make sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And again, just appreciate you listening to this and hope you enjoy this episode with Connor Derrickson. All right, we now welcome on Connor Derrickson. Um, Connor, thanks for coming on today, man. No problem. Glad to be here. So you're with the the Twins. Um, you said your your title is rehab minor league rehab coordinator. Uh, yeah, minor league strength and conditioning coach. Minor league rehab strength and conditioning coach. Minor league rehab strength and conditioning coach. Okay. So I got a, definitely a lot of questions for you. You know, this is it's it's a weird time right now because it seems that you know the minor league can, season was canceled, so it seems as if we're going to have uh, many more months to prepare um, for next spring training. So right now, what would you what what would be your recommendation to players um, all, all over the place whose season's winding down? Maybe they just got done with summer baseball, or maybe they couldn't play at all. And they have, you know, six to eight months now to prepare for next season versus, you know, the typical two to three months. Is there anything different that you would recommend to them in terms of a workout program? Yeah. Um, you know, it really varies with obviously athlete to athlete, but a lot of people, we just, we get away and we almost not necessarily make excuses, but um, find ways to not train as hard. You know, we, I played this many games, I threw this many innings, and I need to take this time off. Um, when most of the time, we need to just stick to training year-round. Um, so that, that's a big thing. It's like get a consistent training regimen going, um, consistent training plan, and stick to it because, you know, especially with less baseball volume happening right now for most people in America, uh, we, we try to pick up that volume somewhere else. and. and needs to really be the weight room right now so you don't think that when it's you know 100 degrees outside and, and kids are playing day in and day out that they shouldn't now i'm not saying back off training but it should be it should be different than if it is an off season in terms of volume and how hard they're training oh yeah i mean i mean in the off season we're obviously going to train a little bit harder and maybe maybe more days or so than in season. But um, when it comes to like heat and games played and stuff like that, I still think, yes, volume might need to go down, but intensity still needs to be um, obviously monitored and controlled, but it needs to be somewhat high. Um, and I believe that you can still get stronger in season. Uh, I don't think that's uh, something we can shy away from or need to shy away from. 
When it comes to, to volume and, and tracking athletes' recoveries, do you think that you know, a, lot of, a lot of people who are going to be listening to this are going to be parents, they're going to be coaches, um, mm-hmm. players of, of all different ages. And I've seen the whoop band, right, where it tracks recovery. Mm-hmm. Do you, would you recommend that? to That way they, they can understand whether they, can, they should push themselves or not that day, mm-hmm. especially in season? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I've heard mixed reviews on whoop bands. Uh, I think maybe for person to person, it might be okay. Maybe, maybe if you're going to get whoop bands for 100 guys and you're going to track a team or something like that, it might be a little bit muddy or it might be a little bit different there. But my understanding is that sometimes the, the data can get a little bit muddy, just monitoring when you can wear it, um, all the environments that you wear it at, do you ever take it all, stuff like that. Um, recommendations for getting it I mean it can't really hurt I mean if you have the money but a lot of people don't really check off the easy stuff that you need to do uh, when it comes to recovery first like are we sleeping eight hours a night probably not are we having like three to six solid meals a day you know like we can check off like nutrition sleep hydration first and then maybe maybe after that we can like look into like getting a little band but once we do those easy, basic things that most teenagers and parents like, um, want their kids to do, then maybe we can check in what bands. Speaking yeah. of, of eating right, how many grams of protein would you recommend for kids who are trying to get stronger to consume a day? Yeah, I guess it, it, it all depends on body weight um, as well, but um, especially kids. Kids are doing so much activity. Um, most, most kids, like, especially if like they're getting into the weight room and they, they, they're really gung ho about working out and stuff, they start crushing protein, crushing protein. And really you're just, you're consuming too much protein. I remember when I first started working out, like, you know, all the kids, you want to get ripped, uh, you want to look good and you want to get big and you just start crushing protein shakes, eating all the chicken breast and stuff. And you almost feel a little depleted. Cause you're just, you're crushing way too much protein. Um, that's what I find with most kids. Most kids, you need a lot of carbs, um, to really sustain and be ready for performance. Um, so when it comes to the actual protein amount, uh, I honestly forget what the recommendation is per body weight or kilogram of mass you have. But, uh, usually, you know, if you're, if you're doing one gram per, um, per body weight, you're, you're pretty on track. So you, if anything, you think most people consume too much protein. They need to actually back off of the protein shakes. I do. I do, honestly. Um, I think first is, you know, I'm big in the basics. I think first is, like, checking to make sure you have a well-balanced diet, like free and vegetables, fruits, solid meats, and, you know, your good source carbs, potatoes, and stuff like that. I think that's first. And then you add in a protein shake after your workout, you'll one of your protein limit or um, capacity for the day. Because after you, after you consume what your body can consume, I mean, you can only consume, but maybe like 20 to 30 grams every few hours or so. Um, your body can't really con- use it for energy as well as it can carbs. Gotcha. What, uh, Connor, what's, where, what's your background? Where, where are you from? And, and I know you're with the twins now, but um, just maybe give us a little bit of glimpse of, of where you've been at. Yeah, so I'm actually from Virginia, 
um, from a little island in Virginia, actually called Chincoteague Island. Um, little nobody island where we grew up with like 20, graduated with 30 guys in uh, my high school class. Um, uh, played juco ball a little bit uh, after high school. In high school, I played all sports, you know, football, basketball, baseball. Played some juco ball. Um, stopped playing after that, actually. Um, went to a D3 school called Salisbury University in Maryland. Um, that's where I started doing internships and getting into strength conditioning. Uh, I did my first internship there and fell in love with it. I had a great mentor in Madden 9. He's still one of the, I think, great strength coach, and especially in small schools. Um, I did another internship at Sacred Heart University in the summer. After that, I went to William Penn University uh, for a fellowship there out in Iowa. Um, then uh, after that fellowship, I went to Weber International University where I did my graduate assistantship. Spent two years there working with baseball, volleyball, all different types of sports, the Olympic side. Um, then after that, I, I joined in with the Twins. Um, my first year in pro ball, I was in Loa in Cedar Rapids. Um, and this is my second year now, and I'm the minor league rehab strength conditioning coach. And I love it. You know, baseball is awesome. I love to be around it. That's what we do. It, it seems as if in the strength conditioning world, the internship um, route is something that's pretty popular. Do you feel that it really made a difference for you going to different places and interning and, and learning from different types of coaches? Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, it's really great and unfortunate at the same time. Uh, I think in coaching and all types of coaching, like what you really got to do is you got to be ready to go with the drop of a hat. Most of anywhere in the country, if you want to, if you really want to pursue coaching at a, not necessarily a high level, but at a well-rounded level. Um, I had a great opportunity just to learn under great mentors, uh, which was really transformational for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when it comes to coaching in general, I just think you really have to be able to take any opportunity that comes your way. Because, you know, I think we can all say that we've applied many, many places and got many, many no's and many, turned down many times before we got a yes. Um, so really finding that right opportunity and jumping on board. Did you, did you ever envision yourself working in professional baseball or did you just want to work in sports and it doesn't, didn't matter where? I did. Um, I, I've always wanted to work in pro ball. There was a time, I mean, obviously, as a strength search, you want to take whatever full-time job you can get in the beginning. But uh, there was times, I mean, I've bounced around saying I want to be in the collegiate setting. I want to be, I want to be in the high school setting for a long time, working with high school kids. Um, and then the professional opportunity came around. It's like, okay, okay, that's what I want to do. Uh, then once my first year in, I was, you know, I fell in love with it. Um, I'm really enjoying it. What did you think of the the grind of your first professional season? Did anything catch you off guard, or was it as hard as you expected that the season to be of, of traveling and the food and living situation? Yeah, it's definitely different. Um, coming from grad school was definitely honestly helpful. Like being a GA, you just kind of get, get thrown around in a lot of different areas. Um, just with class and the workload of that night. I mean, I had night classes, so I was in class till 10 o'clock at night, coaching baseball groups at 5.30 in the morning. So it's like, and you're doing meetings and coaching in between. So it's just, just go, 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 sleep, wake up, do it again. Um, and then it's just, you get to baseball and it's like, 
the exact same thing, but totally different. You're, you're traveling, it's go, you're just, you're away from your family, you're away from your loved ones or whatever. Um, it's just a different kind of go, 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 a different kind of hustle. Um, and it was different. Yeah, it definitely takes some adjusting, but um, if you got a love for the game and a love passion for what you're doing, like, it definitely, it's, it's definitely easier. Um, yeah, earlier I was texting you about, you know, some possible topics, you know, we could dive into a little bit and one that mm-hmm. um, someone sent me and I, I had messaged it to, to you too was, why, uh, why are there certain hitters and pitchers who are, are small in size? You know, they're not very tall. They don't weigh very much. But, yeah, they generate a ton of power. So I, I think they, the guy I mentioned to you was Mookie Betts, right? How is someone like Mookie Betts able to generate more power at the plate, hit the ball harder than, I don't know, just someone like me who's like 6'4", like 220, but he crushes balls compared to me? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, it's something – will always really wonder because there's always going to be outliers. Like we were, me and a couple of friends and people, we were having a good conversation this past week and honestly about similar topics. And it's like, if you look at all the hitters throughout the major leagues, most of your power comes from the monsters, your massive people like the cruises and people that weigh 200 plus pounds, like your size, like you said, 220, 240 really strong human beings, really girthy, um, strong humans. Why? Probably because they have a greater or smaller window of error. Um, what do we all chase? We chase exit below. Like, you're, if you're a strong human being and you can time and sequence well, and your window of error is probably a little bit smaller than most. But then when it comes to, like you said, like Mookie Betts or someone like a Christian Yelich, which is probably 180 pounds. Both of them are probably 180, 85 pounds. Um, you look at other things, like they just, my opinion, I think that their window of error is just a little bit smaller and that they might just be a little bit more athletic than the others. They probably dissociate really well from the hips and the pelvis or from the pelvis and the shoulders. Um, they probably have extremely great timing, great sequencing. Like I said, can separate really well and just have great back to ball and hand eye coordination. But other than that, like it's probably that's probably the most basic answer you've ever heard. And that's probably what you would assume. It's just there's always gonna be those outliers. But in my opinion, it's just strength wins. Like even if you look at like I try and think of like Bryce, like Bryce Harper's probably maybe two hundred pounds, but the dude's strong as an ox. I just only know that because I follow him on Instagram and I can see him squatting the house and training really hard. Um, and I really think that wins. And in the end, strength will win. But uh, guys like Mookie and Yelich, like, they're, I think, very few and far between, but extremely athletic and great timing and sequencing. So would you say the same thing for pitchers who aren't, aren't very big either? I was watching a, a guy the other day I, uh, in the big leagues pitch, I, I kid you not, he looked like he weighed 160 pounds and he was throwing 100 miles an hour. Just unbelievable. I would say it's very similar. Levers, you know, great advantage on levers. And usually they don't, in my opinion, I don't know the actual numbers, but usually I, I would say they probably don't last. If you actually look in the big leagues and look at how many guys that are under 200, 210 pounds that have been in the big leagues for over five years, it's probably few and far between. and if you were to say they've been in the big league five plus years, over 200 pounds, and throw over 
an average of 92, 93, 94, 95 miles an hour, it's probably not many guys. Yeah, or probably getting hurt if they even if they are. Exactly, probably broke. So do you do you feel that strength coaches, even though maybe you can't just take anyone off the street and who's not very big and make them into someone with a generated amount of power as Mookie Betts, but do you think that they can make significant gains by really utilizing strength conditioning? Yeah, I do. I really do. Whether it's pitching or hitting, um, I think size really matters and strength really matters. Um, I don't think you're going to take a, a Joe Blow or a little Johnny and make them a superstar because I think there's obviously baseball is, I think, one of the hardest games in the world to play. But I think strength training is and training in general is one of the first boxes to check off because anybody can go in the weight room and work hard if you have a decent strength coach to watch over you. One of the one of the hot things probably in the past year or two has been movement assessments. You see them everywhere on Twitter. Um, curious to hear what you think about that because I've talked to some people and you know they like doing the movement assessments, and then I've talked to some other coaches and their philosophy is I'm assessing every day just when the guys are warming up. So it's not it's kind mm-hmm. of a different type of assessment. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think it's important. Um, you know, I think I think everybody is different. I think we can't really treat every individual that comes in the weight room or within your organization or your team the same. You know, I, I don't want to give wherever I'm at in the future or here with, with the twins, I would never want to give everybody the same blanket program. Um, they all don't need the same things. They all have different needs. So how do we differentiate between those needs? It's, we need to screen them. From every, in every way possible, I think. Um, if you look at SFMA or FMS, I think they all have great screens in that aspect for, for movement and stuff like that, uh, as well as OneBaseU. OneBaseU does a great job of um, demonstrating all of those different screenings and applying them to baseball in like easy ways to show people and almost like so high school can do them on their own. Um, I think they're all great. And I think, like I said, you never want to give 20, 30, 40, 50 guys the same exact program because nobody needs the same thing. We all have different needs. Is some of that just based upon, though, in terms of giving them different types of programs just on who they are, like what their build is, like what they need to – the lowest hanging fruit, I guess, if you will, if it's someone who, you know, we're trying to get them to be able to hit the ball a little bit harder and farther, you, you know, you don't necessarily need a movement screen to tell you what how to program that that player. Mm-hmm. Or am I off on that? No, I, I think you're – my thing is, is in the end, um, overall, most – probably 90% of people, especially your high school, collegiate, minor league guys, strength is going to win first. Um, basic strength training is going to not fix a lot, but it's going to help a lot. A lot of anterior core training, um, basic movement patterns – getting stronger in those movement patterns is going to help first. Um, and then it comes to, you know, the movement quality of everything. And you really dive into that and how you're going to load those patterns and the best way to load those and get exactly what you want with, without hurting anybody. Um, so it really is, I believe, necessary and important, especially if you have the time and the resources. 
do you do you believe do you like to utilize certain um exercises to help strengthen that interior core and i i ask that because i i work with high school kids and i've seen a lot of high school kids and that seems to be lacking for for many of them and so i'm just i'm just curious if there are certain exercises and i know it's hard to to exactly be able to program because you don't actually haven't actually seen them yet but i guess just from a standard point of view are there anything that you would recommend yeah for sure um honestly i would start with your big three movement patterns it would be a squat pattern um most people forget like they always think it's like some kind of plank or a dead bug or something just to get the interior core strong but um a great squat or an actual heavy squat can will train the core extremely um well better than really anything especially a good squat and a deadlift and a push-up you see you probably saw during covid all the videos on instagram with the push-up just getting butchered during in the beginning like pre-beginning mid-covid where everybody's on push-up challenges and their pelvis is touching the ground before their chest is anywhere near the ground. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So great pelvic positioning during, during a push-up and waiting or loading the push-up in that position, phenomenal anterior core. Um, and the same, like I said, with a goblet squat or a normal squat and deadlift, having the core and, and the pelvic, pelvis in a good position and training and loading those positions, one of the best ways possible. Do you think that... I actually got this question the other day from someone who was worried about stunning his kid's growth um, by starting to have him um, lift weights. And I told him, I was like, I know enough to be dangerous, but I mean, I'm not a strength guy by any stretch of imagination. And so my, what I told him was it's like anything else. You just start light and then just progress over time. And would that be, is that, was that, was that good advice to give him? Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think that's a 20-year-old myth that just kind of, I don't know how it's still lingering around. I think training is just, it can start at very young ages. I just think it just comes down to movement quality. You know, you're not, I think it was just bad back in the day because kids would just, they started doing things poorly and at a young age and started loading it, you know. Let's learn the movement before we start loading it extremely heavy and I think most kids are going to be fine in that aspect. For dual players who do both, um, would you stay try to stay away from farmer's carries just because of the elbow? Mm, not necessarily. I mean, I guess it depends on their throw volume, but depending on their movement screen and how, how, they, how they present themselves in their screening, I wouldn't necessarily stay away from farmer's carries. Um, Farmer's carries, if anything, is going to strengthen your grip and strengthen your form. Um, I, unless you're loading it to a super high intensity and volume while they're in season and stuff, I, I, I wouldn't say you need to um, shy away from it. I remember back in uh, the day, which not that long ago, doing wrist curls and spe- specific forearm stuff like crazy and you know, u- utilizing rice buckets was a really big thing to – help with the, uh, you know, your, your strength in your wrists and forearms and every, and whatnot. Is that still something that should be 
done or should you acquire that strength from, you know, doing the deadlifts and those farmers carries? So it's more of you're doing, you're, you're exercising and, and building strength among other muscles versus just your wrists and forearms. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a place for almost anything, honestly. And if you, especially if you're like, honestly, in the rehab mind, you know, there probably is a place for doing some wrist curls and saying, you know, Bryce focus were huge probably five, 10 years ago. Um, and high rep, low weight, stuff like that for any muscles. Huge. Um, and probably, you know, and some part of the rehab model of somebody coming off an injury, it might be good because they can't do anything else. And that's some way to train the muscle or the musculature around an injured limb or whatever they have going on. But if you're completely healthy and you have no other issues, the best way to do is just is to load up, load it up as much as possible. And that when, if you can deadlift 400 pounds plus, uh, your grip's going to be pretty good. You're going to have pretty good grip strength. And therefore you can farmer scary and do all these other things. And, you don't have to load it with 15 pounds and hit 15, 30 reps. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Connor, I got a selfish question. Um, I, I can't bench press very much at all. I mean, like very much at all. But yet I can dumbbell bench press a really, really, really good amount. And I have pretty long arms. Why, why, do, why is that? Because it would, it would seem as if if I can't bench press very much, but then I wouldn't be able to do dumbbell bench press either but yet i can i at least i i think i kill it on the dumbbell bench press but i i mean it's embarrassing on on a regular barbell bench mm -hmm. uh that's a good question i mean honestly like, have you heard that before yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah and like when it comes to dumbbells like honestly there's a lot of stability that comes into play because you're not like fixed and you can't really like bend the bar and kind of make a home there and that's what most people struggle with on bench press is that they don't really make them one with the bench you know what i'm saying like you need to really most people don't get their feet set and really screw their feet into the ground they don't realize how big of a multiple joint movement it is it's like because your feet need to be really driving into the ground and mm. you know you could arch your back you know that's the topic too you know powerlifting whatever but really driving your feet into the ground and um becoming one with that bench will really help and i don't know you know it's, it's a tough question why why you're crushing the dumbbell stuff <laughs> all right, you well, might, i mean i don't know if you've done dumbbells for a long time and then you're trying to convert over or you just feel more comfortable maybe you have a little bit more shoulder stability um that's a good question yeah i mean I, the last time i was at the gym i i put about 225 on and i and i raised it and I, as soon as I raised it, I realized, yeah, there's no shot. So I just put it right back. And, and then I got up and looked around to make sure nobody, like, saw that. <laughs> Walks to the dumbbell rack and grabs the Hondas and just starts wrapping them out. Right, right, exactly. Um, what, what about supersets? I, I, this is another thing that I've been uh, curious about. Like how much of lifting should be like, you know, done immediately in like in supersets where you're just nonstop and then how much of it mm -hmm. should be, uh, there's a break and you let your body recover. Yeah. It depends on, I guess, really where you are in the season and what your goal is um, for the training session and the block or phase of your training, wherever you're really at. Um, so, but usually if you're looking at like, a tier one movement, like, like a major movement, like a squat or a deadlift, 
or bench is really important for you. Um, maybe you don't want to superset so much with that exercise because obviously like deadlift, like that's involving a lot of joints and involving a lot of muscles and it's supersetting that you might take away from that deadlift. So mm -hmm. if I'm supersetting that with a row or something else taxing, deadlift is my most important movement for the day. I don't want to take anything away from that deadlift. So maybe I might program in some fillers, like some shoulder exercises or some mobility exercises or activation, you know, something like that. So I'm getting some work in, maybe some mobility work, but it's not really taking away from that deadlift or that squat. Um, whereas maybe in your next block, you have another exercise, whether maybe bench that day, but that's not as important for the day. Maybe you can superset that with some rows or something else. Um, it all depends. Like people program differently, but if you want to, if actual strength and foundational strength isn't the goal for that phase, then maybe you're just crushing supersets of intense exercises back to back to back, and you're in and out in 30 minutes. But the intensity of the actual weight being moved isn't that high but the volume might be. Okay. So that, okay. I got you. What, what about sprinting and jogging? Where, where does that play a role in, in a, a baseball player who's trying to, you know, play in the big league someday? Yeah. I think sprinting is really, 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 really important for all athletes. Um, if you're like a parent and you want your kids to play something. And I think I would love for my kids to, run track because it just sets them up for success later in, in all sports. Uh, learning how to sprint well and being efficient with it helps, but just really learning how to run hard and running hard. Um, I think it's super important. Um, so yeah, I mean, doing sprints in season, out of season, uh, varying the intensities and the lengths and um, the positioning in which you start uh, is, is important as well. And just, creates an environment for for change and for your body to adapt yeah sprinting sprinting huge i mean it's go ahead no no i guess my next question was going to be because i know this would be the what people would want to know well how how far and how long how many reps mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i guess it depends on the sport you know we play baseball and you look at the base pass it's only so far so 90 feet or whatever and how, how far does an athlete or an athlete an outfielder run in any given play? I mean, maybe 60 feet tops. I don't know. I mean, sometimes obviously there's outliers and they're going to run to the center field wall and make a diving play and stuff. Um, but they're really not running, running super far. Like maybe a football athlete, they, they might run a little farther. Probably not though, besides your wide receivers or your kicker turners. Um, so really you're just, you're looking at the sport and you're, you're trying to mimic what you're going to do in the game. Um, so the positions that you're going to start in, whether it's an outfielder opening up or an infielder running, starting in a lateral position, running to the side or stealing a base, um, you try to mimic those positions. So you vary from anywhere from five yards all the way up to 60, maybe even 80, 80 yards. I think it was 40 yards. You might not even go up to 80 or 60. You might keep it shorter. Uh, but there's no there's no sweet spot there's no right right or wrong answer there okay 
One of the things I've been seeing on social media lately, it's been getting ripped has been uh, the agility ladders. Um, now mm-hmm. I used to crush agility ladders and I'm starting to, to think that that was just a complete waste of time. Um, would you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I used to crush them too when I was like in <laughs> high school and I had no idea like what was right and what was wrong. You just, right. they're called speed ladders. You know, you thought you were going to get speed. You thought yeah, you were going to yeah, get faster, yeah. you know? Um, nowadays it's just, I mean, there's no triple extension. There's no extension of the ankle, the knee and the hip. So you're not like running, you know, you're, you're extending the hip. There's none of that. And, any of those in the speed ladder. Um, I do, I don't mind it actually, if you were to use it for like a warm up or something, it teaches, or especially with young kids, it teaches basic coordination, uh, some of the movements through it, you know, uh, just actually teaches awareness and maybe some tendon health, you know, and some foot and ankle health. So like throwing it in and in a warm up for, for some kids, I don't think it's a bad idea at all, especially young guys. Other than that, I, I mean, I really don't think it's going to make you faster. Okay, dang it. Um, the next thing that I, that I have on here that I wanted to talk about was the recovery process because baseball players, you play every day. Um, sometimes there's, you know, you're playing multiple games a day. So at the end of the day, to help you recover and get ready for the next day, would doing a 15 to 30 minute static stretch of hamstrings, quads, hips, everything increase your recovery for that next day? It depends, I guess, you know, and that's, that's an easy answer for anything, but um, I'm big on the individual and how, what makes them feel good. And I think mentally, I think that's important, especially in the sport that we love so much in baseball. I think there's a lot of feel and having the athlete feel super good and, is is huge um so if a pitcher likes to he just had a start that night and he likes to static stretch for 10-15 minutes and or maybe get on the bike for just steady state for 10 minutes i think that's okay because i think that that'll help him feel better for the next day but what you um, recommend that um yeah that's, I, don't, I don't i really don't think there's any harm in that to me if I would say go eat a good meal and go to sleep. Um, that's your number one. Like a lot of people, there's a lot of like run some poles, you know, like yeah. go do this run after your, after every start. Uh, I don't know if the recovery process can really start then if you're going to start more activity. It doesn't, to me, I think we should let the recovery process start immediately after that last pitch is thrown as you go take a bite of your food and you're relaxing with your friends or something like that, I think, and then you get a good night's sleep. Um, I think that's best personally. What about ice baths? Yeah, ice baths. Um, I guess that kind of falls into like the, the feel thing, uh, right after, I don't know, like maybe for a position guy and you're playing every day and you just, Mentally, you need a shock to the system, and there is actual research that say ice baths can help, but um, there isn't like any saying that they will. It says that they can't help, you know. Yeah. Um, so obviously, it comes down to each individual. Because um, you'll see, you know, a lot of places have hot and cold tubs. They'll go hot, cold, hot, cold, whatever for so many minutes. Um, whether that's in the morning, before, or after, or whatever, but. 
like I said, it comes down to the individual. Uh, nice to have those at your disposal, though, for sure. Do you believe that when, when working out, um, specific for baseball players, that they should be utilizing rotational exercises for their for specific, or sport specific, like baseball? Yeah, I do. Um, I think, you know, like a lot of a lot of baseball guys will throw a lot of med balls and do other rotational activities within the weight room. And I think it's important. Um, I think there's a time to train movements and there's time to train like movement specific, I guess, to the sport, like rotational stuff. And there's a time to train um, actual movements that are geared towards mainly getting the body um, stronger and training for strength. Uh, but I think, yeah, there's definitely a place for rotational activity. Would, uh, would foam rollers be under the same category as ice baths and, um, you know, a recovery of the answer is just, it depends. No, I don't think so. I think foam rolling is a little bit more important than that. Um, I would recommend foam rolling every day, uh, 30 seconds per muscle group, kind of deal 30, 40 seconds per muscle group. Um, there's a lot of research. There's more research in that area um, with fascia and stuff on that line of how everything's connected from the back of your head all the way down to the bottom of your toe. Um, they're just a lot, a lot more intertwined in fascia there that can be broken up. And I think foam rolling is not one that you can easily write off. I think it's a lot more important. So I, I'm glad you brought up the fascia part because I've been hearing some people talk about this left and right and with a lot of things that I, I look at or read it's it's okay like I, I see what you're saying but how do I take this and apply it to help out my the hitters that I'm working with so talk about breaking up fascia so you want to break up fascia and foam rolling is a way to do that or is that kind of the only way to do that no I don't think it's the only way to do it but I think it's the not necessarily even the best way but I think it's the easiest way um, to start, the best way to start. Um, I think we check off foam rolling first and then we move from there. Like if you feel like you're getting everything you need from foam rolling, then good. But other than that, then you probably have to divvy out to some kind of manual therapist or massage therapist in that aspect to really get in there deeper or your athletic trainer. Um, not really my realm, but that's, that's something where um, where I would, if I were to see that and notice that, I would um, give that out to probably our massage or manual therapist. But how how would you know that? Like, how would you know that they need to break up more of their fascia? Yeah, it's hard. Um, hopefully, you have some kind of movement assessment where, or screening process where you're checking off all the other boxes, and maybe maybe you can't figure something out and. All right, they do this when they're screen, and they do this when they're hitting, and what it's not really linking up. Because usually, when you don't want to see, when I look at their screen, and I can you can tell how they're going to hit, how they're going to present at the plate, or how they're going to pitch, and how they're going to um, move on the mound. But it's really not linking up. Then you start checking off other areas that maybe you're just not looking at, and then you divvy it up there. So it's like maybe fascia falls into that realm. Okay. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Now I'm starting to understand it a little bit more. What you've been at the college level. Now you're at the professional level. Mm -hmm. 
what do you do you notice anything different in the motivation for athletes who get after it in the weight room right right where you when you were in college did you have to get on guys more to consistently work hard or has it been kind of just you don't you don't really have to worry about that like guys will get get their work in regardless yeah it's different because purple is just such a mixed bag you have guys from really all over the world um and all different ages you know just in the minor leagues you might have a 27 28 year old guy that's been to college and it's been around in the minor leagues for a long time and you might have the 17 year old um from south america or central america or wherever um so it's just different like you know in college the coach you know a lot of times or yourself as a strength coach can just kind of set the parameters and there's punishments and you don't show up and you're doing this and in pro bowl it's just a little bit different uh you encourage a little bit differently you educate a little bit differently uh, but i'm not going to talk to the and educate and encourage the 17 year old from the dr the same as a 28 year old that's had a strength coach in college and has been around the block and is the same age as me we're going to have two different conversations um, so it's only how you talk to people, I think, and the relationships that you build with each, each guy, but it definitely is different. Um, definitely is different. That's good stuff. Um, before you start your workout, say you get up in the morning, which I know happens uh, in professional baseball, you get up in the morning, you know, pretty early guys go in and work out sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you recommend that they eat something beforehand or go on an empty stomach, um, and then grab something after? Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely recommend eating. There's a lot of, you know, there's always, always, always going to be talk about whatever the diet is, the fad diet or the intermittent fasting or whatever it is, keto and stuff like that. But uh, we'll always recommend to our guys to have a a solid meal before they come in, whatever time it is, you know, because obviously when you're an affiliate, a lot of guys aren't coming in until 12, 31 o'clock and because they get home or whatever game ends at 10 30 they get home at 11 30 12 o'clock uh, and they're sleeping till 9 or 10 so whenever you wake up the best thing to do within that next 30 40 minutes is to get a good meal in before you come into the field for sure it's interesting i've noticed more and more strength coaches talk about how you know or name the diets you know fad diets of the intermittent fasting and mm-hmm. keto and things of that nature um, I assume that you're under the belief of just having a well-balanced diet and not really having to not allowed to have any carbs or can only eat during certain times. Would that mm-hmm. be accurate? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. I don't, I tried them all just to try them, just to see that I've had experience with them. I've just seen them all come go. And I've seen so many athletes throughout the years will just, will try this one and just nothing ever sticks. Nothing is ever consistent and, it's nothing ever long-term. Um, I just don't, personally, I don't believe in restricting yourself from one macronutrient, whether that's protein, carbs, or fat. Um, so, yeah, that would, that would make me pretty well balanced there. Well, I agree with you on that one. I just had a donut not that long ago, so I'm not going um, <laughs> to sure. argue on that one. Connor, this has been awesome, man. I really, I really appreciate you coming on. I know, uh, you know, my good buddy, Jared Gaynor, you know, recommended you. Um, so I said I was looking for a, a really good strength coach to come on the podcast. So, um, again, man, I appreciate it. 
I know I'm sure you're busy doing stuff with, with your own guys all over the place. So we really appreciate it. And again, man, just best of luck to you. Yeah, I appreciate your time. And I appreciate you really just having me on here, man. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.